I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. I try to speak to you. Doubting Thomas. Forever he has that adjective attached to his name. And I want to see if we can change that this morning. One of my favorite things about doubt is the little saying that says, when in doubt, just mumble. (laughs) I want to tell you about a novel written in 1995 named Towing Jehovah. It's a satire. It was written by the American writer James Morrow. And in 1995, he received the World Fantasy Award for the best novel. And its satire might be a stretch for our saintly sensitivities. However, it also demonstrates the extent to which we humans will go, the extent to which we will go to protect and justify our preconceived ideas and our entrenched beliefs. It's a story of God dying and his body falls out of the heavens into the ocean and it's two miles long and the angel Gabriel comes to the captain of the mighty Valdez oil spill who has been dishonored and invites him to use his ship to drag the corpse into the Arctic for proper burial. Meanwhile the Catholic Church is a little perturbed. They want to honor the burial of this God and yet they want to keep it a secret because if God is dead there is no longer any reason for their existence. Meanwhile the Atheistic League of New York decides that they too want to destroy this body because it proves that there was a God and now there is no longer any reason for their continued existence. Meanwhile the National Association of Feminists also want to see this body destroyed because it's very obviously a male. (laughs) And so the story goes on as these people so entrenched in their beliefs that any factual reality is not going to stir them from their agenda. And in reality I want to suggest that this is a little bit what the disciples are struggling with in our passage today. Their preconceived idea of a world leader who would establish a theistic kingdom and overthrow their Roman overlords kept them from understanding what Christ's kingdom really was about. And despite Jesus' persistent statements about his impending death, they maintained this other anticipated outcome. How many times did Jesus try to tell them through facts and parables, that God's kingdom was somehow different. And then they watched in shock and horror as he was crucified. One had already bailed on him and betrayed him and then committed suicide. Another face-savingly denied him three times. And now after the burial, today's New Testament text tells us about one who had serious doubts about the whole communal journey they'd been on. The only faithful ones along the way, again, were a group of women. And now they were coming up, these women, with an amazing story. Initially, all of them doubted. Not just Thomas. 
all of the disciples. Luke 24 tells us that when the women told them, it seemed to them as an idle tale, and they didn't believe the women. I want to suggest that there is a healthy or genuine kind of doubt, but there is also a kind of unhealthy and debilitating kind of doubt. The poet Christian Wyman is helpful here. He suggests that we can know the value of our doubt by the quality of the disquiet and the discernment that rises up in us. Does our doubt produce a kind of anxiety and fear that doesn't allow us to move, that incapacitates us? Does it become an ironclad compulsion to refute or to find rational explanations? Is it an almost religious commitment to doubting itself? That is, if one part doesn't make sense, the whole premise, the whole baby is thrown out with the bathwater? An all or nothing kind of doubt. And this pridefully says that unless everything is right, then everything must be wrong. And certainly the disciples were anxious and fearful. They're in a house and the doors are locked and they likely are trying to decide, what do we do now? My hunch is that Thomas didn't want to be with them right then. His doubts had a little bit of a different quality. It was more disquiet. What just happened? And I'm guessing he was a bit of an introvert who wanted to sit with this disquiet and confusion without all the other voices competing for his thoughts. He did not want to be influenced by the group speak that has a temptation to captivate all of us. This is what Wyman calls genuine doubt, honest doubt, devotional doubt, even humble doubt. And he suggests that this kind of doubt is marked by three qualities. The first quality is humility, which makes one's attitude impossible to celebrate. It's not an arrogant doubt, humility. His second aspect is insufficiency. It's not enough, but neither can you give a pat answer to this doubt. It makes it impossible to rest. You are mentally and emotionally internal hemorrhaging. And the third aspect of this holy doubt, he says, is mystery, which continues to tug at you upward, or at least outward, even in your lowest and hardest moments. This honest doubt, this devotional doubt, is doubt that knows its own limits, that knows that it's incomplete. You could say it's doubt that urges us to run to something instead of from something. And I know that doubt can be a crutch, the same as an immature faith can. But ultimately, to be a person of faith is to yield ourselves to something that we cannot know completely. And so I want to suggest it takes a lot of courage to doubt in this honest way. But it takes even more courage to move through that doubt to a place where you can say, now, what do I believe? And I think this is what theologian and professor of preaching Fred Craddock meant when he told his congregation one morning that he thought one Sunday they ought to all form a circle with some garbage bags 
and put in them all the things that they didn't believe anymore. We'd fill up a lot of bags, he told them. But the critical moment comes when we have filled the bags and then we look at each other and we say, now what is it we do believe? And what is it that I believe? This is humble, honest, genuine doubt. This kind of doubt is never absolute, just like genuine faith is never absolute. It's a both and rather than an either or. I like the quote from Wolfgang Pannenberg, a theologian. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong, he says, that nobody would question it, except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. As one person said, I don't always doubt, but when I do, I doubt my doubts. And that's just about right. There is also a communal sense of holding doubt, which I've mentioned before, just as there is a communal faith. Barbara Brown Taylor, at the age of 20 or 21, in the height of her academic sort of entry and career, was sitting in her church, a church she'd grown up, an Episcopal church in the US, reciting the creed, and came to this line, and I believe in the virgin birth. And she burst out laughing. Virgin birth? No way. And then she thought, am I losing my faith? But she looked across the audience and she saw Sandra, an elderly friend of hers. And she knew that for Sandra, the virgin birth was key. And if it fell, the whole house of cards fell. So she decided communally that she would let Sandra believe in the virgin birth for her right now. And she also knew that Sandra had a real hard time with street people, with the disenfranchised. And for Barbara Brown Taylor, that was where she was called to minister. And she knew that for Sandra, Sandra felt those people should just go out and get a job. That laziness creates poverty. But for Barbara Brown Taylor, she said, no, it's poverty that creates laziness. And so I'll believe that for Sandra right now. The holding of a communal doubt with humility, uncertainty, and mystery. Paul Tillich says, to doubt, he said, is to understand the magnitude of what it would mean to believe to understand what is at stake. We don't tend to have doubts over things that don't mean anything to us. And so doubt is not the opposite of faith, Tillich says. He says that doubt is the consequence of the risk of faith. I want to suggest that doubt is not the opposite of faith, that doubt is the opposite of certainty. Instead of insisting that you get it right, Doubt invites you to understand it in a new, more fully way. And often it invites us to see a paradox where two seemingly opposing things both seem to be true. Judas's story might represent the opposite of faith. What Karl Barth said was he chose his own nothingness by turning his back on Jesus. 
Barbara Brown, this same Episcopal priest, who after many years as a pastor left the pastorate for academia, she found that the busyness of parish life, I think Chris and I will both identify with this, the busyness of parish life, the role of pastor, often interfered with her quest to be fully human. And yet she describes this role as undeniably holy. And all of the praying and caring for people and being the Bible expert filled up her time so much that she didn't have time to quench that desperate thirst she had for Jesus. And all the things she was supposed to do kept her from doing the things she was made to do, which was to be in communion with God. And this kind of stress can create a negative doubt because everything becomes too much and you begin to feel like, where is God anyways? And she says this about doubt. Doubt often brings me to poke at what I believe. And when it topples, I realize I'd made it an idol. And so doubt and disillusionment have been the divine gifts that have led me deeper into who God is. It seems to me that this is the kind of doubt we need, the kind that sends us to tackle the things that we insist are true with such persistence that they topple. And we discover that what we dare to wish for, like resurrection, is actually true indeed. One doesn't necessarily replace the other, but God's truth, God's son, God's good news that death is conquered, he is risen, this new reality claims it all. All of us know that Jesus died. The disciples knew, the women knew, Thomas knew. And when they dared to go to the tomb, when they kept hunting down rumors of this risen Lord that were too good to be true, and when they doubted what they dared to wish for, and when they were afraid, Jesus came to them, claiming his divinity, no, his humanity, displaying his wounds, his holes, and with it theirs as well. And he dragged them into a new reality, he dragged them into the new kingdom. He didn't take their fears away, but in saying fear not, he invited something that transcended those fears. And so doubt can support us in choosing what will feel like a good uncertainty. The need for surety will tempt us always with bad certainties. And this honest, sacred doubt gets us past what we no longer believe to what we tenaciously long to believe. And look how this quiet, scared group of disciples emerged from this experience. Our Acts passage tells us how they transcended these fears to proclaim the gospel message right to the leaders who wanted to protect their own spin at all costs. The disciples in their encounter with the cosmic Christ had become citizens of this new kingdom, a kingdom filled with goodness, with truth, and with beauty. Faith is a spiritual practice that emerges from our longings. Doubt is always a fellow traveler, if we're honest. And so how can, my question for us today is how can we learn from its discomforts?
What does doubt teach you? How might Thomas, not just in his doubts, but in his courage, in his questions, and in his actions, speak to you about your own journey? His doubt held the searching energy that kept his faith alive and new. How we need that invitation in our lives today. Amen.